Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. We are all told as children that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we recognize that that's generally a lie, because words can and do hurt, especially pejorative, derisive slurs. When slurs are uttered, people generally have one of three responses to them. One thing that people do is do a complete vehement rejection and attempt to clear one's name, to explain it, to rationalize it, to denounce the slur or the term being used. Uh, projection is another way people handle it. This is a more advanced version of the playground, I know you are, but what am I? Uh, trying to demonstrate how the slur is more appropriate for the one who is giving it than it is for the recipient. And the third way is ownership, an attempt to defang a slur by owning it and making one's own. Uh, there's some good reason to think that's the big way the word Christian began, that when disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, it wasn't a positive thing, but Christians kind of owned up to it. Uh, another way, a queer, um, is a, a term that's been uh, used that same way, and also the uh, a very derogatory term uh, for bl black people as currently being used among black people, and, and many other instances we can probably think of. We talk about slurs, because we're coming to one that often is used uh, against the Lord's people, and that is legalist, or Pharisee, right? And a lot of responses to this, to being called a legalist, uh, have run the gamut. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people respond to it. Some have rejected it and sought to demonstrate why. Others have projected it back on those who would use it with various degrees of effectiveness. But there are a lot of people who have just decided to own it and will even maybe proudly declare, yeah, I'm a legalist, or we should all be legalists. And so it's good for us to spend some time considering legalism. What is legalism? Uh, is an appeal for authority for a practice inherently a legalistic enterprise? Is legalism really a good thing or a bad thing? What would be the problem with legalism? And how can Christians most effectively glorify God in finding authority while avoiding legalism? So what is legalism? The American Heritage Dictionary defines legalism as strict adherence or the principle of strict adherence to the law or prescription, especially to the letter rather than the spirit, the doctrine that salvation is gained through good works, the judging of conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. It's very important we're going to come back to each one of those principles, the idea of strict adherence, uh, principle of strict adherence to the law, to the letter rather than the spirit, doctrine of salvation gained through good works, judging of conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. This is going to keep coming back over and over again. A lot of people see that definition, especially that first part, well, strict adherence, right? And think that that's great. We should be that way, right? We should be totally strictly adhering to what God has said and making sure that we have authority for, from God for doing anything that he has told us to do. And uh, in this view, to make an appeal to authority and legalism are conflated, and that justifies the use of the slur. But is an appeal to authority inherently a legalistic enterprise? It's a question that we're going to keep also coming back to. Well, it's good to ask the question first. When and why is the legalist slur thrown around? And when we ask this question, we first must be completely honest that there are times and places when Christians might well be approaching a matter in a legalistic way, and thus the slur is not unfounded. But generally, when legalist is thrown around, it's when a request is made to provide biblical authority for something regarding which you can't find explicit authority in Scripture. 
in my personal experience, this kind of reflective reaction uh, when a practice which a person has essentially taken for granted is questioned. That when book, chapter, and verse cannot be found, it's easier to cry out that the one asking for such authority is a legalist than to concede that the practice is not based in explicit biblical authority. So is it a problem to look for explicit biblical authority? Well, in Colossians 3.17, Paul tells us that whatever we do, in word or deed, we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the name of there is understood to be a way of talking about by the authority of. In Romans 6, 14-23, that we are reckoned as slaves of righteousness, that we are serving the Lord, that we should seek to do what pleases the Lord, and that's based in what he has told us what to do, and in the various ways we understand how he would have us to do things. In Matthew 5, in verse 19, in chapter 23, in verse 23, Jesus indicted the Pharisees and scribes, um, but we shouldn't miss what he says in each, that uh, those who break even the least of the commandments... Um, are not justified. Um, and the problem that God, Jesus had with them is not that uh, they tithe the spices, it's that they neglected the weightier aspects of the law. Now, a lot of people do exist who want to justify and rationalize divergences from the Lord's way by appealing to, quote-unquote, freedom in Christ and, quote-unquote, grace, as if uh, freedom in Christ or grace excuses or commends doing things that God has not authorized in Christ, or even justifies the violation of things that God has authorized in Christ. So, yeah, when legalist is thrown around, a lot of time it means I cannot justify my position on biblical grounds, so I'm going to call you a nasty name to save face, and we need to be understanding this and clear out about this. But we still have this fundamental question that we're dealing with. Is it an appeal to authority inherently a legalistic enterprise? And to understand this, we do well to consider Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. One thing that Jesus makes abundantly clear throughout his ministry, uh, for example, in John 17, 4, 7 and 8 and 14, when he prays to the Father, is that he always himself lived under authority. That everything that he did was according to the will and purpose of the Father. That nothing that he was doing was different than what the Father had, had authorized him and, in fact, in, in commanded him to do. It's also important to note that never in the Gospels does Jesus chastise anyone for following or observing the law. So Jesus absolutely does appeal to authority, but he's chastising and condemning the Pharisees uh, for their practices as it related to themselves and to the law. It's good to really look there in Matthew 5 and see this indictment that Jesus can, uh, gives against the Pharisees in which he declares, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, even though he's not using the term here, he's uh, condemning them for their legalism. Uh, what's going on here is so much emphasis upon 17 and 18 about what does it mean that Jesus has come to not ab abolish but to fulfill. And it means that he comes to embody the law so that he can satisfy it and, and thus able to set it aside. It's not the idea that the law was going to endure forever. Uh, but notice that the point is uh, anybody who teaches to relax one of the least of the commandments is the least in the kingdom, but those who does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So in, in this sense, ironically, you could condemn the Pharisees not being legalistic enough. They're not truly following the law stringently. They're not really upholding the whole law. A lot of people want to turn verse 20 into some kind of uh, false statement, but Jesus, I think, honestly means it. That it, you, you're not going to heaven if your righteousness does not exceed the kingdom of uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, because the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to find ways to justify uh, something less than what has been commanded. Now, before we think that that goes ahead and commends a uh, kind of myopic focus on, you know, strictures, uh, in chapter 23, uh, among the denunciations that Jesus uh, gives to the Pharisees and scribes, which are many, about hypocrisy and things of that nature, he also says, beginning in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without, leaving, without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So notice that it's straining out a net. They're so focused on these little peculiarities. They got these certain things are really focusing, but they're swallowing the camel. They're missing the big picture here. That's why their righteousness is not sufficient. It is not rooted in justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's rooted in this fastidious observance, strict adherence to certain laws over the spirit and um, a very much a works-based salvation type thing. Salvation, they think, it seems, is based upon good works. Uh, we look at the model prayer. It's a kind of perverse model prayer. It's not really a model prayer. It was the model prayer of a Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, verse 11 and 12, where the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That prayer is basically saying, look at how I'm fulfilling the law. Look at what I'm doing. Um, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's textbook definition of legalism. And especially this last part, the judging of conduct in terms of adherence of precise laws. Uh, the Pharisees were all over this. They considered the rest of Israel to be sinners because they did not observe the law to the level of satisfaction of the Pharisees. Uh, so we notice in John chapter 9, when the, Jesus healed the man born blind, he's brought to the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees know that he wasn't really healed, that this really wasn't of God, because uh, we know he is a sinner. How is a man who is a sinner doing such signs? Notice that they never question, wait a second, what if he's not really sinning? No, no, no. That was already satisfied because he had transgressed one of their tr very tribalist identi identity markers of what it means to be uh, Jewish, which is the observance of the Sabbath the way they observe the Sabbath. And so, it, it, because of all this, Jesus is completely correct. You have to have a, a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees if you're going to enter the kingdom. Because theirs is based on this legalistic enterprise that just simply cannot be sustained. And so, we can see that, yes, you can definitely make an appeal to authority without legalism. And beyond that, we see in the Pharisees the major difficulties of legalism. And to show that we don't want to be legalists. Yes, we need to appeal to authority and make sure that we are authorized in what we are doing in matters both big and small. Just because it's a detail matter doesn't mean that we can just throw out authority, as we see in Matthew 23-23. But we must not fall into the trap of believing that we are justified because we are keeping some kind of law code meticulously. First of all, because we're not. We're not following the law code meticulously. We're following certain things well, but probably neglecting others. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23 and 1 John 1.9. Secondly, 
More importantly, salvation is God's free gift. It's something that is unearned, it is unmerited, it's given in grace, received in faith, and not earned by law-keeping. In Romans 3.20, in chapter 5, 6-11, 6.23, and in Ephesians 2, 1-10. The legalistic posture is also not, how can I glorify God in all I do, but really is, what is the least I can do and get away with it to appease God? We can see this in that lawyer who prompted the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, oh, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, why would he ask that? Well, he wants to be justified. He wants to be made righteous in his current conduct. And Jesus just devastates his chauvinism uh, and tries to show that, no, you need to go well beyond this. And so that legalism is not looking to glorify God. Legalism is, is trying to skate through. And that's not an attitude that glorifies God at all. And we also shouldn't neglect, by the way, this final principle of legalism, judging others in terms of adherence to precise laws. And that's a really big problem among the people of God. It's the same problem that plagued the Pharisees. Uh, because the Pharisees could never see who Jesus was because he violated one of their fundamental principles that wasn't even respecting the fullness of what God had made known about the matter. And Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. To them, he could be nothing other than a sinner. Even though, as Jesus pointed out, one of the themes of the Sabbath from Deuteronomy is liberation. And he was liberating people from the yoke of Satan. And so it wasn't really a work in the sense that they were thinking it was. And the spirit of judgmentalism is rife among legalists who are all too eager to condemn those who do not share their views. Now, I don't want anybody to be deceived. We need to condemn that which God has condemned. We need to warn about condemnation coming uh, for those who have not repented in Romans 1, 18-32, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Galatians 5, 19-21, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6-10. I'll attest to this. But we need to be very careful when we start entering in a territory where we uh, start condemning where God has not explicitly condemned and where God has not where we can't automatically associate it with the works of the flesh, that maybe, just maybe, God does not care about certain things as much as we do. Uh, Romans 14, 10 through 12, uh, and James 4, 11 through 12 are in Scripture, just like Matthew 7, 1 through 7, that in the end, we're not the judge. We're not called upon to judge uh, the salvation of those outside uh, of the body of Christ, and the judgment that we provide for those within the body of Christ is in determination regarding certain uh, sinful things that they do without repentance. Uh, God is the one who needs to be doing the judging, not us. It's for us to serve God and seek authority for what we do, and leaving the judging of people to God. And if we needed any more emphasis on the matter, there is the very powerful thing which James, uh, the Lord's brother, tells us in James chapter 2, that, uh, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so there's no mercy in judgment for those who have showed no mercy in judgment, and that's a very terrifying prospect. And so I hope that we've seen so far that legalism is not a positive thing. That no one should want to be a legalist. No one should glory in legalism. And I think, I think the best out of a lot of Christians who might say they, that, they, uh, that they're legalists, that when we discuss the full nature of legalism, and it's made clear that to be a legalist is to look for the least that you can do, that you're priding yourself on your salvation and you're condemning other people, that they'll admit, yeah, yeah, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about I think we need to have authority for what we do, which we've already seen does not make you a legalist, that you can have an appeal to authority without falling into the trap of legalism. And we need to be very clear that legalism will not save anybody, because it cannot. 
We're not saved by meticulous observance of any law. We've all sinned and fallen short, and we're going to depend upon God's grace and mercy if we're going to be saved, according to Romans 3.20 and Ephesians 2.8-9. So legalism is not a good thing. We should not boast or glory in being a legalist. But it's not just about scrupulous law-keeping. There's also the heart of the matter itself. Are we in a faith-based posture before God or a law-based posture? We often see the commendation of that law-based posture, even if a person will not go so far as becoming a legalist. Because even though there's recognition that we're not saved by law-keeping, there is very much easily made an emphasis on making it all about the law or about the rules. One way that we see this is all the discussion of the new law. Uh, This is a way of talking about what God has uh, commanded us in Jesus. People call it a new law, as opposed to the old law, the law of Moses. In this way, there's attempting to be this continuity maintained between what you see in the old covenant and what we see in the new covenant. And people will say, well, look, in Galatians 6 and verse 2, that we are to bear one of those burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And here in James 2, we just read it, the law of liberty. And so look, there's law there. And so what we really have now is a new law code, which is better than the old law code. Now, in Scripture, we can find a high veneration of God's instruction and value in establishing righteousness and avoiding sinfulness. The longest psalm, Psalm 119, is all about this. And it's easy to extend this into new covenant. But if we really are to maintain a law-based posture in the New Testament, isn't it a bit odd that the term is only used a couple of times, and even then doesn't really look like a law code? That term, new law, is never found in the New Testament. It is not a Bible term. There is no Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy, per se, in the New Testament. There is no law code part. In Galatians 6, too, yeah, Paul does say, bear one another's burdens, and that's how you fulfill the law of Christ. That's not a whole law code. That's just doing the one thing. And it sounds a lot like a restatement of John 13, 31 through 35, that, that by all will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another, uh, than anything approximating a whole law code of thou shalt and thou shalt not. James 2.12, beyond being written to a Jewish Christian audience, who by all accounts are very zealous for things about law of Moses, is speaking of Christians as being judged by a law of liberty. And doesn't really sound very law code-ish because it's talking about, for instance, mercy over judgment. And a law-based posture, beyond all these concerns, is actually explicitly chastised in the New Testament in Romans 6 and verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And when people hear that, wait, say, what? We're, we're not under law, we're under grace? Does that mean that we're not under any kind of commandment? That we are to are we antinomian, to be against law? Well... Paul himself anticipated this because, uh, hey, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. It's the very next verse. He's already anticipated that. And notice how what he then says. Uh, Do you not know that if you present yourselves, anyone is obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness and he keeps talking about what it means to uh, have lived become a slave of righteousness and unfortunately i think we've granted the conceit to too many of our opponents 
assuming even in our own minds that if we were under grace, we could just do whatever we want. And God forbid. And we see what Paul says here. To be under grace means you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed, i.e. to the gospel and to what God has done in Jesus. Now, for in a law-based posture, what Paul's trying to say is mystifying because the imagination in law posture cannot conceive of this nuance that Paul is offering here, that we are not under law, but we have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed. If you're in a law-based posture, you just think that that's some kind of law. But it's a faith-based posture. And if you start making it about faith, you see it everywhere. Uh, the, the New Testament is constantly talking about the faith that is in Christ Jesus in Acts 3.16, 13.8, 16.5, 26.18, Romans Romans 1.5, Romans 1.16-17, 1 Corinthians 16.13, Jude 1.3, and a ton of other places. And ironically, earlier in Romans, in chapter 3, he talked about the fact that Christians uh, were not going to be justified by uh, the law of Moses, but instead by a law of, by law of works, me, but by a law of faith in verse 27, that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, the faith-based posture is appropriate because there is no Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy in the New Testament. It's just Jesus and the expectation that Christians live and walk as he walked in 1 John 2 and verse 6. Does that mean there's no commandments in, in New Covenant? Absolutely are covenant, uh, commandments. In, in fact, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, the first couple of verses, uh, in verse 2, he is a propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word by in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk even as he, in the same way in which he walked. So, yeah, Jesus gave us commandments. We're to walk in them. Jesus also gave his example, and the apostles testified to his example with their examples. And we should walk in them in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. The faith-based posture recognizes we have not earned our salvation, but we have received as a free gift, and we trust in God and Christ. That trust will lead us to seek to be pleasing to him in all that we do, to become slaves of righteousness, as you see in Romans 6, 14 through 23. In this situation, it cannot be about law-keeping or performance or exactitude in understanding, insight, or even practice, because by all of those measures, we're going to fail, because we are just we are not at the level of God uh, in Romans 3, 20 and 23 and 1 John 1, 7 through 10. This is not an appeal to not do anything. We're to strive to do all we can to glorify God in Christ. But it's a reframing of ourselves, a repentance, changing of our heart and mind to get away from a law-based mindset toward one in which is more relationally based in God and Christ, based in trust, based in faith, based in that moment, movement toward relational unity uh, to which, for which he was praying in John 17, 20-23. Now, the limitations of a law-based posture are numerous. Because a law-based posture is going to lead to some kind of self-justification. It's not seeking to glorify God, it's just trying to accomplish the letter of the law. A law-based posture becomes myopic. It uses certain laws as standards and bellwethers. It demands exact uniformity in those strictures while allowing wider latitude in others. A law-based posture tends toward justification by works. I have done the law, and therefore I deserve a reward. And in the New Testament, that's just simply intolerable. A law-based posture puffs up in self-righteousness. Ah, I am doing the law, or I at least know what the law is, and thus I am so much better than, or thank God I am not like those denominationalists or those secularists. A law-based posture also reduces everything to right or wrong, good or bad, a salvation issue. 
any nuance regarding profitability or concession for weakness is lost, which is very much against Romans 14, 1 through 23, and 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 28, in which we see that uh, something can be uh, unclean for him who thinks it's unclean, even if it really is clean for others, and that just because something is right doesn't make it profitable. A law-based posture often can lead to the most arcane exercises in logic and contortions and argument to justify or condemn a thing. You can witness the Talmud, uh, where you see almost impenetrable lines of logic being used to explain why this is right and this is wrong. Uh, but also, even at home, some of the finer-tuned argumentation regarding certain practices. And, and so many other times, this law posture is, is seeks a carnal justification that if I can just find a way of of authorizing this, then I can do it. Where all of a sudden it's just we we do it because we can, uh, never really thinking about whether we should, whether it's profitable, or even that's the way God is glorified. Uh, it, it's all about it's all in 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 this kind of thing about the law. It's not about faith in Christ. But really, in the end, so many times a legalistic or law based perspective is going to make it about rules over people. And if that is how Jesus had treated us, where would we be? And we see this in the reaction, whether spoken or unspoken. But they broke the rules. Okay, they broke the rules. What about it? What now? What if God in Christ had been that legalistic toward mankind? What if God always without fail chose rules over people? We'd all be going to hell. Are there times where people must suffer the consequences for breaking the rules? Absolutely. We've all participated in the wages of death in that way in Romans 6.23. But the God who made the rules also wants all people to be saved in 1 Timothy 2.4. And he sent his son to die for us because we broke those rules in Romans 5.6-11. Absolutely, people break the rules. We've all broken the rules. If we want mercy to triumph over judgment for us, should we be so uncomfortable with the prospect that God might... Uh, have mercy triumph over judgment for some others? Because we've all broken rules. We have no standing before God because we've kept the rules. But thanks be to God that we're not under law, but under grace, and we've received grace to trust in God in Jesus. So it's not just legalism that can cause difficulties. It also can be a law-based posture in the new covenant that can be problematic as well. So how can we as Christians maintain a respect for authority to seek authority without falling into the trap of becoming a legalist or maintaining a law-based posture? Well, we need to ground ourselves thoroughly in Jesus. God has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth, and all that we do in order to each should be done in Jesus' name in Matthew 28, 18, Colossians 3, and verse 17. Yes, the New, the New Testament is extremely consistent about this. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Christians serve Jesus. Christians keep Jesus' commandments in 1 John 2, 3-5. Christians walk as Jesus walked in 1 John 2, 6. Jesus empowered the apostles and prophets to make known his purposes for the kingdom. The record for their teaching in Scripture is authoritative for our faith and practice. We see this in Ephesians 2.20, Hebrews 2.3 and 4, and Jude 1.17. So yes, we demonstrate our authority for what we're doing by appealing to what God has made known in Scripture, but it's authoritative because it's from Jesus' authority and all to the end of glorifying Jesus in all that we think, say, feel, and do. That we must always remember that we are serving a person the risen Lord by grace through faith in the Spirit, that it's not about a law code or a series of irreducible principles, but it's about following Jesus and embodying Jesus to people today. This is the whole, you know, spirit over the, the law in Second Corinthians 3, 1-15, uh, Ephesians 2, 8-9, that we're saved by grace through faith. 
that Christ has set us free from the law, that we will no longer be under law, but under his grace. And that is why we do well to be obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed in Jesus and the scriptures, to live and expect justification by faith, not by works of the law, to avoid that legalism emphasizing rules over people, and in Jesus and his grace and mercy, find eternal life. We're again so glad you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If so, please uh, share it with others on social media. And uh, if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, wherever you found us, we'd appreciate it. If you have any other questions, you'd like to talk more about this, if you have a prayer request, if you'd like to check us out, learn more about us, please find us online at VenezueChurchOfChrist.org or find us also on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.